Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the Lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Last Friday, one of my heroes, Tim Keller, passed away from pancreatic cancer. His son, Michael Keller, recounted his final moments. Dad waited until he was alone with mom. She kissed him on the forehead and he breathed his last breath. We take comfort in some of his last words. There's no downside from me leaving, not in the slightest. See you soon, Dad. Like many people, I never knew Tim Keller, and yet he's made an immeasurable impact on my life. The Reason for God was published in 2008. It's a book that kind of made Tim Keller famous to the broader world, but it was also just a year after I became a Christian. I read it in a few short days, and each chapter strengthened my young faith. I realized for the first time that following Jesus is intellectually defensible. After I finished, I began to search the internet for anything I could find by Tim Keller, PDFs of his teaching, Bible studies, sermons, essays, anything at all. His prayer Bible study taught me how to meditate on scripture, and it gave me a longing for revival. His Daniel Bible study dismantled the divide between sacred and secular work. It taught me that all of creation is Christ's. His book, The Prodigal God, and his Galatian study show me the beauty of grace and forgiveness. His book, Counterfeit Gods, introduced me to the idea of idolatry, and it taught me that only a deep affection for Christ could expel my own love of sin. The first book I ever read about marriage was his book, The Meaning of Marriage, and it taught me about the supreme beauty of deeply committed, self-giving, covenantal love. After I graduated from college, I knew I wanted to enter into full-time ministry, but I also knew I didn't know how to teach or how to lead or even think about church. And so again, I found myself turning to Keller. I searched the back pages of back pages on the internet to find Keller's unpublished 300-page PDF called Preaching Christ in a Postmodern World. I didn't have much money at the time, so I remember I, I paid what felt like a hilarious sum of money to have it printed and spiral-bound at a Kinko's. And by the time I finished it, I swear half the book was completely highlighted and all of the margins were filled with my personal notes. During that same time, his book on diaconal ministry called Ministries of Mercy, it gave me a vision for how churches could pursue radically generous justice. His articles on church growth dynamics and his later book, Center Church, they've been a lodestone at the crossing. This is the church where Keith and I pastor. It's been a lodestone that's magnetized our compasses so that we could journey towards a true north, a church that blended the insights of many traditions, a church that saw itself as a counterculture, that sought the common good through service and orthodoxy and by Bible study and prayer through humble excellence and holding to a distinctive worldview. I could continue going for another 10 or 20 or 30 minutes about how Keller has influenced me and our church. I could tell you about all the friends he introduced me to who I also don't know. Jonathan Edwards, John Owen, Ed Clowney, Harvey Kahn, Elizabeth Elliott, N.T. Wright. It just keeps going. 
Or I could tell you stories of how he showed surprising care and love for people. He was always a pastor at heart. When people critiqued him, he'd often reach out in private to say what he appreciated, to build bridges. When young leaders needed support and care, I have friends who Tim reached out to out of the blue, even though they had nothing to offer him. And he encouraged them. He served them. You see, Tim forged his deep insight into the human soul by sitting with real-life people as a pastor in pain and in counseling, and he did it all with grace. But here's what I found most remarkable about Tim Keller after his death. As I'm reading other tributes to him, I see that everybody else's list of favorite books differs from my list. I see that they're all telling different stories of generosity and kindness. I see that they're all highlighting different parts of his ministry. I see that he's influenced so many of us in so many different ways. And I have no doubt that that's true for many of our listeners. All of this shows the profound breadth of Keller's work. Most authors could spend a lifetime writing in any one of the areas I just mentioned, and they could hope to write one great book. But Tim wrote countless classics on diverse subjects. This wasn't because he was an unfocused polymath. It's because he saw how one theme, one person, unified all things and somehow saw that one person in all things. That unifying theme was the beauty, love, grace, power, and justice of Jesus. That unifying person was Keller's beloved Savior, his King, his Messiah, and his Lord. It makes me think about the book of Ephesians, where Paul writes how God chose his children in Christ before the creation of the world, predestining us for adoption, forgiving our sins by his blood, and lavishing his grace upon us. And he says, all this happened unto the glory of God. Then Paul goes on to say that the Father did this in verse 10, quote, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Tim Keller wasn't a perfect man. After all, he said at the end of his life that, this is a quote, I think the way I handle imminent death is by fighting my sin and getting deeper communion with God. Few flawed, sinful, and perfect humans have managed to so deeply unify Christ in their thinking and life as Tim Keller did. It seems like Tim's goal was exactly what Paul said, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And Tim, he did it with the greatest simplicity, fighting sin and fighting for a deeper communion with God. The book of Hebrews is a great reminder to me because it tells me to remember my fathers and mothers in the faith so that I and all of us can run our own races with perseverance. Now that Tim Keller has finished his race, I'm praying that Jesus will use his faithful, kind, patient, loving wisdom, his expansive vision of Christ in and over all things I pray you'd use that as an inspiration for all of us as we strive by grace through faith to run our race. So this episode is a bit of a thank you to Tim Keller for being a lamp on my own path, guiding my feet closer to my king. I'm praying for his family, and I know that he'll rest in peace with my king until the day of our glorious resurrection. Now, I want to share with you an interview that I did with Colin Hansen several months ago, so you'll be able to tell by listening to it that Tim Keller hadn't passed away and how we're talking about him. But I wanted to share it with you now because Colin wrote a biography of Tim Keller. He's kind of an expert on Tim's life. And in this podcast, we were both just sharing the ways that Tim had influenced us personally and how he shaped our evangelical moment in a tremendously positive way. So I know it'll be strange listening to an interview where we're talking about him as though he's alive when he has recently passed, but I hope that this small interview is a wonderful testimony to the good works that God has done through his faithful servant, Tim Keller.
Colin, it's great to have you on the show today. Oh, I'm very glad to be here, eager for this conversation. Yeah. So I want to start with you and your own relationship with Tim Keller. How did you first meet him and what led you to decide, I want to be the guy to write his biography? I mean, did he ask you to write his biography? How did that work? Yeah, he did. It was a bit of a back and forth process, but I got to know Tim Keller all the way back in 2007. And yeah, he did invite me to write the biography, but it was a back and forth process. We've known each other since 2007. I wouldn't say that it was a particularly auspicious start. (laughs) I was the news editor of Christianity Today. One of the last things I did there was to write about the Gospel Coalition first public conference in 2007. And he gave one of his most famous messages there on gospel-centered ministry. And I was writing a book at the time called Young Restless Reform. And so I said, hey, I'm working on this book. I'd love to talk with you about this book. He said, I don't want anything to do with that book. <laughs> and then I said, well, wait, wait, wait. why did he want something to do with the book? Well, so, you know, so many things are more obvious in retrospect. And what's interesting in retrospect is that he was a way better fit for that book than I thought he was at the time, because everything that I wrote about between 2006 and 2008 is exactly what he had gone through himself in seminary. There was a mini version of Reformed Revival that I wrote about later on a kind of national and international scale that was happening in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Kathy Christie, now Keller, was a part of that. John Gerstner, R.C. Sproul, Ligonier Valley Study Center, and then connected up to Gordon Conwell in Boston. That stuff was all happening. So Tim was a clear part. I mean, famously, the picture on the front of Christianity Today magazine, and then my book was Jonathan Edwards is My Homeboy. That was something that could have been said by Tim Keller back then, studying with Richard Loveless and studying with Sproul and all those sorts of folks. So looking back, that was the case. But at the time, Tim, for most of the time that I have known him, really for the first 10 years, was laser focused on New York City. Everything was filtered through the implications for his church in reaching New Yorkers. And then by extension, then the different churches that they were planting across New York and then across the region and then ultimately in cities like New York around the world. So I think there was just a general sense of his participating in intra-evangelical discourse, even though he started the Gospel Coalition. It just was not something he was particularly prone to do. So being in a book about that, I think he just didn't want to participate in that. But then he said, send me a bunch of questions. I did. And he responded, yes, no, no, yes, no. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Did he really give one word responses or was that that just the effect? Oh, Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute. I must have asked the wrong (laughs) questions if he was able to answer one word. Did that make you kind of dislike him at the moment? No. Then I went back to him and a friend of mine from Christianity Today had started working as a book editor, and we said, you know what would be amazing? What if we published a series of books that represented Tim's kind of confessional, missional, cultural engagement? What if we did that? And so we went to him and we said, hey, Tim, would you like to do this together? And he said, yes. (laughs) So we did that for about the next six, eight years or so and produced a number of different books through that series. It was always just kind of a complicated back and forth. And then kind of similar to the biography, it was his decision and the publisher's decision. I helped to facilitate the process just because I felt like somebody needed to write the book. And I didn't care which publisher that was. I didn't care if that was me. 
I just thought somebody needed to do it. And then it was up to Tim and the publisher to decide if they wanted to work with me. And thankfully for me, they did. That's an interesting story. And I'm glad you guys found a path forward after that initial no. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things you say about Keller in the book is that he is gentle and ironic. And obviously there's an intensity to his thinking and to his work ethic. And if you've heard him preach, he's not milquetoast. I mean, he has passion behind his words. But maybe just describe for people who don't know Tim Keller, what is he like in person? Well, I mean, in person, he's exactly the same as what he is, what you see. Tim loves to do the same thing in private, in conversation, that he loves to do when he's preaching or when he's teaching, when he's writing books. He loves to talk to you about what he's thinking. He loves to talk to you about what he's learned. He wants to talk to you about experiences that he's had that have helped to inform his ministry. Essentially talking with him, this was kind of my goal with the book. The book was kind of like talking with Tim. Yeah. (laughs) Just like, oh, did I tell you about that time when Ed Clowney and I were... Mac and what, you know, that's kind of the way he talks. The only thing that's missing is that I don't think he's ever called me without insulting me first. (laughs) Every single time he calls, he first has to insult me in some way. (laughs) And then we move on (laughs) to whatever else. Give us us an example. Well, I mean, the recent one, I texted a photo of my oldest son and he had seen it because he was texting me back. And as he texted me back, he saw that picture of my oldest son again holding the book. And he said, well, you know, that boy, he looks just like you, Colin. Why would you do that to someone? (laughs) (laughs) I I love that. I just used that one before. I don't feel like I got that part of Keller even from your biography. No. My co-host Keith and I, we always joke that we don't take ourselves seriously, which means we don't take you too seriously. And I've always thought, you know, <laughs> God has to have a sense of humor if he made humans. I mean, our bodies are funny. The things we do are funny. And so there's something about levity that is embracing the goodness of just being ordinary people. And so I love hearing that. It's just kind of that dry, sarcastic kind of humor. <laughs> That's his thing. And there's a little bit of that... British self-deprecation and poking yes. at others yes. as well. <laughs> One of the things that makes your autobiography strange is Keller doesn't really jump off the pages. And mm-hmm. what I mean when I say that is he's not a loud, brash, abrasive personality. There's other people who really do jump off the pages. For example, Kathy, her <laughs> quotes and what she says, I mean, you get a real feel for who she is and how she thinks and how she interacts with people just by reading her words. And so I'm curious, I mean, yeah. why do you think that's the case? Why does Keller kind of loom in the background of his own biography, whereas the people he interacts with seem to become louder than life? Isn't that kind of being a preacher? (laughs) I mean, your job is to not point people to yourself. Your job is to point people to Jesus, and especially to God's Word, where they can encounter Jesus. And so I think in some level, it's always fit his personality to deflect toward others, to deflect toward Jesus, to deflect toward what he's learning in the Word. So in one sense, Tim is always standing behind whatever he's doing. So let me give you an example of this. If you've ever sort of watched Tim in the middle of a dispute, you'll notice a certain pattern with him. He becomes the commentator on the dispute. So instead of being an interlocutor saying, you're wrong, this is why, he steps back and up and begins to comment on the discourse. That is a very common kind of way he interacts with things. You'll talk about specifics and then he'll take a step back. So that's essentially what happens in the book. It was interesting when I was working in studio on the audiobook, I noticed that whenever 
By the way, this is why you have authors read their books. <laughs> I realized that every time I was reading Kathy's quotes, I would start shouting. <laughs> I'm so I glad you start... brought this up because you can hear it in the audiobook. I listened to it. Okay, you listen yeah. to the audiobook? Yeah. I got to this point, I'm like, wait a minute. Every time, and I stopped and I mentioned to the engineer, am I really like changing my tone when I do something from Kathy? He's like, yeah, I actually have to adjust the volume quite a bit whenever you start talking about Kathy or whenever it's Kathy's quotes. And I'm thinking, well, that is true to life right there. That is true to life. They are dynamic equals in all ways, but they are not the same. I think that's exactly what Tim and Kathy have tried to argue in terms of their understanding of complementarianism. They're certainly equals, but again, they are not the same. They have different roles. They have different responsibilities. They have different obligations. They have different strengths, different weaknesses. They are truly complementary to each other. I think if you were to spend a lot of time with Tim and Kathy, I think you'd see that, of course, like Tim would be engaged. Tim would be vocal. Tim would be you know, answering questions, but Kathy would be there right with him. And that goes all the way back to the way people talked about their time at Hopewell. They do Q&As together. Then the Q&As they would do after services at Redeemer. It was Kathy would be sitting there in the front row and she'd jump up and answer a question sometimes. And so they really are co-founders. It doesn't mean they're co-pastors. That's definitely not the case, but they are truly co-founders. She was on staff as well at Redeemer. So Tim does not jump off the page in part because he's deflecting toward others, in part because his proclivity to become the commentator on situations. And then also because, yeah, compared to Kathy, he's a lot less forward. You could not imagine young Tim Keller doing what Kathy Christie did at age 12, 13, corresponding with C.S. Lewis, and then a little bit older after he's dead, going to visit his house and hanging out with his brother. Who does that? Well... <laughs> I mean, Kathy Keller does that. I had no idea that she was corresponding with C.S. Lewis until I read the book. They had this interesting relationship when she's at a young age. It is a beautiful story. And as you talk about Tim, I'm thinking about a different book I read. It's slightly older, Leadership on the Line. And it talks about how to lead in different kinds of circumstances. And it describes how when you're in complex circumstances where the answers aren't obvious, one of the most important things you can do, they call it getting on the balcony, which is where instead of being in the dance, you get on the balcony to see what's happening. And as you're describing Tim, it does seem like he had this amazing knack, not just it sounds like to do that in conversation, but to do it with culture in general, to get up onto the balcony and see the bigger picture and then describe to the people down on the floor dancing, hey, this is what's happening, which if you're one of the dancers can be incredibly helpful. <laughs> you know, it's so easy to miss in the moment. It's a great leadership skill, but it's not a great management skill, hmm. which is why I talk about the differences there between leadership and management in the book, because that approach is really helpful, but that it becomes difficult for people who work for you when they're saying, yep, yeah, but I mean, we just like need to know what to do. We just need you to solve some problems here. And that's why he's always been effectively paired or at his best, he's been paired with operational leaders who are really good at implementing his vision and sort of managing the process. And one of the things you drew out too is that he had an act for seeing some of his weaknesses. And like you said, finding people who could accommodate some of those weaknesses. But what was really beautiful was his willingness to defer to them. Because, you know, if you are that guy who's maybe up on the balcony and you feel like you can see things, there's also, I think, a tendency to think, and I know how to do the stuff down on the floor better than you do because I think I'm seeing it all. And it seems like his attitude is almost the opposite. I see that I can see what's going on, but I don't know what to do <laughs> when I'm down on the floor. 
I mean, his instinct still today is to work his way out of challenges. That's not to say he's not prayerful, he's not thoughtful, not deliberate, but kind of his general instinct is I can work my way through this. I mean, he's been a 90, 100 hour a week kind of person, just really intense in there. But in any sort of complex organizational leadership, you will run out of time. You run out of hours, you run out of energy, and eventually you run out of health. And I think it's why one of the major crises he faced at Redeemer was related to his health, thyroid cancer, as well as to Kathy's health with her Crohn's disease. And then in the aftermath of the total disaster, of course, of 9-11. So I don't think that's a coincidence because you just can't work yourself out. You can't teach, think, work yourself out of every problem. It's just not possible. You know, going back to the early days of the Gospel Coalition, which obviously Tim helped co-found, it's interesting because you see figures like Mark Driscoll, who, you know, there's whole podcasts and conversations around him now, who seem to have a bigger impact on the ministry style of a lot of church leaders at the time. I don't know if that's right or wrong. It's just a sense I have. In the sense that his character and his ethos, it began to, I'm talking about Mark Driscoll, his character and ethos began to influence the movement and influence the way that pastors wanted to lead. They wanted to lead like Mark Driscoll. They wanted to be like Mark Driscoll. And it's partially because his personality did jump off the page. You saw his personality on stage in a way that was maybe easier to emulate. Why do you think that was the case? Why, you know, in the kind of early days of the Gospel Coalition, did we get so many Driscoll Light churches, but maybe not as many Keller Light churches in terms of ethos, the feel? That's a good question. I'm not sure I agree, but I probably do. I just haven't thought through it that way before. I think part of it's because of the differences between Presbyterians and Baptists. Presbyterians, there's more of a system. There's more of a deliberate process. There's more of an emphasis on education and ultimately ordination, whereas the Baptist sense is much more get out there, do it, don't wait around. So I do think even though Mark Driscoll would often brag about his otherworldly intelligence, he really was a and is a pragmatist at heart and also is very low church Baptist. And I don't mean to slam all of my fellow Baptists out there in the sense of it was turn around and do it. And if you are not successful, then it's probably because you're lazy. In fact, I can't remember if I mentioned this before, but in one of the major X-29 crises, he actually faulted X-29 pastors for being too theological and he attributed that to the Gospel Coalition. And you guys are sitting around all the time reading these articles and reading these books, and you're not getting out there and changing the world. If you were like me, if you were good enough like me, you'd be doing that. And so I think at that level, he appealed much more broadly. There was a sense of just do what I'm doing. Just copy me, and you will have the same kind of results unless you're just not as gifted by God as me, in which case, maybe you could just build a campus and, you know, play my sermons, because I'm obviously a lot better than you are. That, of course, was an actual strategy of his. So I think that's why I think it's more of that cut flower society approach of it's the way that some things can be built really, really, really quickly. And so there was a dynamism to what he was doing at the time that was very widely appealing to people from a whole different stripe. Whereas Keller's approach has always been slower. Now, City to City, which he co-founded, they start a lot of different kinds of churches, not just Presbyterians. But Tim's model, as you can see in the book, is its major payoff at the end 
but a lot of upfront preparation. And I think as a culture, a lot of evangelicals have lost patience with that. But realistically, we're kind of just talking about the differences between the first and second great awakening. Tim was a first great awakening guy. Jusco was a second great awakening guy. <laughs> That's a fascinating comparison. I need to think more on that. I think you're totally right. There is a big difference between the great awakening with Jonathan Edwards versus Charles Finney. More of a, exactly. we can strategize and manage our way into revival with Charles yeah. Finney. More of a, we can prepare the ground for revival with Jonathan Edwards That's and right. God will show up. Uh, which is also interesting. I mean, we're talking kind of in the aftermath of the Asbury revival, which right. in many ways actually felt more like a first great awakening thing. It was. It wasn't, it wasn't planned. It wasn't strategized. There was just fertile ground for God to do something. That was one of the most encouraging aspects of it. And I think, as you can see in the report from Christianity Today, a lot of that had to do with the fact that it was within an institutional context. And because it was in an institutional context, there were responsible leaders who were stewarding the institution. And by virtue of their stewarding the institution, they were then taking care of the students and protecting the students. And in protecting the students, they were protecting the revival. The difficulty in a social media anti-institutional age is that you have all sorts of grifters and drifters who walk through and just want to seize everything for their own platform. And so the reason it felt like a first great awakening was because it was, I mean, let me be completely clear. I want to be ahistorical here. There were really strong anti-institutional elements of the first great awakening, really strong Whitfield, the tenants, all those sort of folks, even some of what spawned out of Edwards, but still Edwards was an institutional man. And insofar as it was still driven in a lot of ways through the congregational churches that when you jump forward to the second great awakening, they were outflanked in multiple ways by the Methodists and Baptists who were far less institutional. I think there's something really key that we're circling around on. It is obviously reflective of even Tim Keller's life, which is that in an anti-institutional age, obviously we are drawn to anti-institutional experiences, things that happen outside of prepared fertile ground. And what you just said is that, you know, for Tim, ministry is about the preparation on the front end. So maybe lean into that. I mean, one of the questions I had as I was reading the book is, what can I learn as a leader in, you know, a church in Missouri? What can I learn from Keller's character and his philosophy of ministry for doing ministry in a post-Christian, post-modern world? I mean, what can we learn from his character? I think, Patrick, that higher education is deriving every wrong answer (laughs) to our current challenge. I don't understand. It seems as though at the undergraduate level, the mass response is what we clearly need right now are fewer people who know how to think and fewer people who can just go out there and make a lot of money. What in the world are we thinking? How does that make any sense at all? How can we not see what's coming with artificial intelligence? Being able to do, i.e. go out there and make a lot of money, i.e. learn how to do something technical in code. What do you think is going to be the first thing that gets obliterated by artificial intelligence? I don't mean to borrow just from that great philosopher Jeff Goldblum here, but there's a lot of just let's do this and not a lot of should we do this? Why are we doing this? Well, maybe if we had a few more philosophy and history majors out there, then maybe we'd actually be thinking about, should we be doing this? What are the unintended consequences of doing this? But instead, we're rushing everybody into professionalization that is going to be obsolete 
because of technology, it removes that. So then jump ahead to seminary education. Look, full disclosure, I'm talking to you right now from Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. I'm the co-chair of the advisory board. We are a residential-only institution. Not everybody can do three years residential, but I don't think you're ever going to find a better apologetic for three years of residential seminary education than Tim Keller's life. You can't replicate the experiences Tim Keller had with his professors and with his students and the kind of just intellectual and spiritual development formation as subtitle of the book without something embodied, without something embedded. Now, I didn't get the sense that Tim was as embedded within a church as I think probably we should be when we're going through that. In part, it's because he was actually changing his affiliations at the time. He didn't decide until late that he was Presbyterian or PCA in particular when he was graduating. And there weren't PCA churches at the time. It was brand new. So I want to be clear about that. But I think if anybody out there has the option of doing three-year residential in a place with great churches, I think they should do that. And it's not to say that everybody should, but man, ministry is a long haul. Those three years are going to look like nothing in the grand scheme of things, but they will set you up for 50 years of ministry. Whereas if you shortcut it and you say, I'm just going to try to do this around the margins, the problem there is that you're going to be much more prone to developing some techniques and methodologies, but they're not going to adapt with time. You got to learn how to think, not just what to think. I teach on cultural apologetics and I can just quiz people on what to think, but that's not the point. I need to teach them how to think because in 10 years, in five years, in 20 years, whatever, the issues are going to be totally different. It doesn't do me any good to just tell them what to think. They have to learn how to think. Really hard to do that without an immersive in-person experience. I was talking to a friend recently and we were saying, what's an institution? And he's like, well, you know, it's just kind of a hierarchy. It's a structure. And of course, institutions do have hierarchy and structure. So that's true. But as I read people like Yuval Levin and others, they make the point that institutions are not just a place where we have a common life together. They're the places that shape and form us into a particular kind of person. And I think what you're saying about seminary is really true. I'm not just going to seminary to get a degree so I can become a pastor. I'm not just going to seminary so I can get some ideas and learn a few things so that I can be a better pastor. There's something formational that's happening during seminary. I'm being shaped into a particular kind of person so that I'm actually prepared for ministry. I mean, that would be at least the ideal of what a seminary should be. And of course, the same thing goes for the church as well. There's a reason why I think we need to have people in embodied communities because they shape us, they form us, they turn us (laughs) into a particular kind of person. So I love what you're saying about Tim saying that actually being deeply embedded in institutional life is not something that jeopardizes renewal and transformation, your ability to reach a culture. In fact, it's the very thing that might allow you to reach a culture. Yeah, let me make a quick point on that. I was hosting a leading Southern Baptist figure visiting Beast, and this was about maybe six, seven years ago. And he said, you know what? Tell you what your guys' problem is. You can't recruit students because you don't have enough famous celebrity graduates compared to where he was coming from. And I looked at him and I said, man, I think that's the point. <laughs> like we don't churn out people like that because our founding dean was Timothy George and our current dean is Doug Sweeney. And they are among the godliest, most insightful, most thoughtful, most generous, but also convicted leaders that you'll find. 
And that tends to be the kind of graduates that we produce. Not exclusively. Nobody does that. But they become truly institutional. There are certain things that are incentivized, being convicted, but also being charitable, being deeply thoughtful, not making much of yourself. That happen when you're hanging out with a bunch of the same students all the time in person. And if you start acting the fool and drawing a bunch of attention to yourself and not immersing yourself in Christian history and the scriptures themselves and in Jesus— you're not going to fit in here. And that's the point. <laughs> that's the whole point. That's how you get prepared for ministry over the long haul, because the celebrity fades, you end up recording, you know, rants on video like Mark Driscoll. It was so cool for me to watch how each institution Tim Keller was a part of had a lasting impact. You compare it to rings on a tree that, you know, some people, they have a tendency to, when they move to something new, to say, everything I did in the past was wrong and bad. I think that, you know, with Keller, you talked about adding rings. And I think about his early days with InterVarsity and the way it trained him to do one-to-one ministry. You know, you talk about him reaching out to individual people who filled out cards one by one by one by one, going to the rooms, having conversations, and that he never left that behind. When he's a pastor in Hopewell, Virginia, he's reaching out to people one-to-one to one-to-one. And it's, of course drudgery in one sense. I mean, it's a lot of work to spend that much time talking to people on an individual basis, but it's something that shaped that institution of InterVarsity, shaped his ministry going forward. And I think that's really beautiful. It's a beautiful way to view the institutions you're a part of, not something to leave behind, but something to shape and form us and add rings to the tree. I think whether Tim is still with us and leading and writing and thinking for 10 years or for two years, I think we're about to transition into the general Keller versus the Kellerites interpretive period, essentially of, well, Tim, I was okay with him, but I really don't like his followers. That kind of thing, I think, is about what we're about to face. And for people who might not pick up the reference, I'm referring to the historiography of Calvin versus the Calvinists, essentially going back in the Reformation. So I think we're about to head into that period, but I do want to issue a word of warning for the Kellerites And that was one of the very specific things that I did in this book was to say that it's very easy to come in as a young person post whenever you want to pick, if you're reading Tim's works, to come in and just only make it from the outward. Because, of course, the tree grows in to out, but we see the tree from out to in. So you sort of look and you kind of hang out with the new growth and the bark and the branches but you don't get into the Puritan paperbacks. You don't get into inductive Bible study. You don't get into one-on-one discipleship. You don't get into pressing for conversion, even encouraging people toward a born-again experience. You can just sort of hang out with the cultural analysis part and miss the whole heart of an evangelical. And so I do hope this book has some sort of effect of helping people to see that Keller is not just the guy who can sit up there and quote the New Yorker. He's the guy who can preach to the heart because he spent a bunch of time with David Paulison and CCEF materials, and because he did a bunch of counseling with people in his first church, and because when he came to New York, I thought I'd have this whole list of books that he read. I'm sure he read more than I was able to cover, but mostly it was just meeting with people. Thank you. 
We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. But today, I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together, that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. I do think there is a pretty significant risk of people just looking at that tree from the outside and not being able to see what it is from the inside. I hope the book has that effect, though. I first encountered Keller actually probably around 2007 when you first met him, but I was a college student who was recently converted. And if you encountered Keller in 2007, it was not the cultural analysis stuff that was really in the foreground yeah. if you read his work. Mm-hmm. It was some of the stuff you just said. It was, I remember reading Richard Lovelace because he told me about him and getting you know interested in Surge and the ministry happening over there because of his yeah. connection with Jack Miller and the Puritans, my co-host. I think our relationship was actually built because we started reading John Owen and Jonathan Edwards together in part... <laughs> because of the influence of Tim Keller. And that's what made this book so good for me. I'm convicted by what you just said a moment ago as probably someone who falls into the Kellerite camp that I can get fixated, especially just given a highly politicized moment on the cultural analysis and cultural critique. And what I loved about the book was it took me back to the heart of why I initially kind of fell in love with Keller's work, which was the Puritans and it was Jack Miller and it was Richard Lovelace and spiritual dynamics and renewal and revival and everything that you brought together. And that was really good for my heart to go back and like you said go to the center of the tree and see that yes the cultural analysis might be on the outside but there's a depth there that we really need that informs that cultural analysis in a deep way let me make a point here that i've said a number of times privately i don't think i've ever said it publicly before i've worked closely with kathy for a long time tim's wife and one of the things that's so interesting is that the disciples of kathy are often pretty different from the people who are following Tim. And it took me a while to try to figure what that was all about. But then I realized that even though Tim and Kathy have been in so many ways in lockstep, it's not like they've had the same world. Tim has been in groups where he's been reading. Part of his job is doing that. Kathy's been focused more on the family in a lot of different ways. She's been more focused on maintaining and sustaining long-term relationships Tim talks in interviews that I did with him and then the book about how Tim's often focused on the responsibilities he has at work the next day. Kathy's tendency is more thinking about their vacations and the people that they're going to be with on those vacations and those memories that she's stewarding. And so what I noticed is that, and she talks about it in the book, or at least if she didn't, somebody else had mentioned it on her behalf, is that first day out of seminary where they had been together in everything, He goes off to church and she stays at home. 
Okay, well, so in some ways, their paths begin to diverge, even with how close they are. Here's my point. When Kathy disciples somebody, she starts out with the letters of John Newton. And those are some of my favorite things ever. And I'm not sure how many people come in late stage Kellerite and think the first thing to understand Tim Keller are the letters of John Newton. And those pastoral letters are just this amazing combination of personal, spiritual, theological, everything all mixed up. And they're a much better, I think, sort of illustration of who Tim is at his heart, a pastor like that, or a pastor like a John Stott, than a cultural commentator like a Charles Taylor or an Alistair McIntyre. Even C.S. Lewis, you would never find C.S. Lewis, even though Lewis is the biggest influence on Tim apart from Kathy, you would never think that Tim is like C.S. Lewis because he didn't write children's books. He wasn't a scholar. He didn't do any of those things. He learned from him. But when you look at the people he's most like, it is more like Edwards, Newton, and Stott. He's a pastor. And I think even some of us in ministry, we get so fixated on these cultural moments, but that we forget that that was the heartbeat of his work. I mean, he was just preaching the word. (laughs) That was what he was devoting himself toward the bulk of his time. Obviously, part of his legacy is going to be something you're leading, which is the Tim Keller Center, which is a part of the Gospel Coalition, and it is a cultural apologetics center. So it seems as though, you know, as we look at his legacy, we're putting culture and cultural apologetics into the foreground, as opposed to maybe some of the other things you said. But maybe those things are more integrated in your mind than someone might initially think. Well, one of the things that my colleague Ivan Mesa always reminds me of when we talk about the Keller Center, he says, Colin, just always remember at the heart for Tim is this piety, this unabashed evangelical piety. It's things that we do at TGC, like the read the Bible plan. It's this McShane reading plan. It's prayer. It's seeking deeper experiences of God in prayer. And so one of the things we've tried to do with our fellows through a lot of vetting processes and just knowing them for a long time is to emphasize that This work is one where we don't have the answers. We're not starting with, we've got everything figured out. We're going to tell everybody. No, Tim doesn't have it figured out. So we're going to have to seek the Lord together. And that's key. Number two, it's like, we've got to pray. It's got to be a work of prayer. Tim is, yes, a cultural analyst. He believes that we really need to be involved in social criticism at really, really deep levels. But he's the guy who prays for revival, has experienced revival. The success of Redeemer Presbyterian Church was not because he had aced some sort of cultural hermeneutics class. It's because God sent a revival and because God's people prayed. That's what a big part of my book was all the women of the PCA who were praying and praying for this work. It doesn't mean it wasn't strategic. It doesn't mean it wasn't hard work. It was that as well. And then third is there's got to be humility. Humility to say, no, we don't have the answers. But second, we need each other. Third, we need to learn from each other and defer to each other because this work is not about us looking smart. It's about what we would love to see the Lord do in his day by bringing many people to know him or to know him at a deeper level, or at least to just fortify our churches against the erosions of our anti-institutional secular age that's 
so beholden to expressive individualism, it requires a heavy dose of humility to be participating in an institution. And I think one of the first times that this idea of the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics clicked for Tim and me together was because of Yuval Levin's work on institutions. We recognized that the way a young teacher in the church is so quickly platformed through ministries like the Gospel Coalition and elsewhere, so quickly platformed that we see that if they're not really, really deeply formed at some level through institutions and obligations to their family, to their church, to the scriptures, to previous generations, they become very quickly untethered. And then you have no idea where they're going to end up. It's just like an out-of-control rocket. It could go up for a little bit, then down, and ultimately crash. It just It's like what we were talking about with Driscoll there earlier. So I'm trying to say there's got to be an institutionalized dynamic that incentivizes godly, humble dependence on the Lord, especially among those people who are doing a lot of the cutting edge thinking, writing, speaking, teaching on these cultural issues. So that's how we conceive the center. Have you figured out a way to actively facilitate that? I mean, amongst the fellows and the people who are part of it, I mean, are you actively emphasizing, hey, we're going to get together, we're going to pray, we're going to confess sin, we're going to seek renewal in our own midst? You know, actually, yes. I don't mean to say that we had some sort of plan, but it sounds really pathetic, but I mean, it's just, it's what I found to work. Slack channels can be hellscapes. There's no doubt about that. (laughs) I would not want to be a part of the New York Times Slack channel hellscape. Yeah. But they can also be places where somebody says, I've got to confess this. This is what I'm struggling with right now. This is how it's affecting other people in my life. I need the Lord's help right now. And then another person jumps in and says, I think we should just hop on Zoom right now and do a prayer meeting. If anybody else is available, we're just going to do that right now. Or somebody else just says, hey, I'm, this is what just happened at my work. This is what students are saying about me. I need help. I'm worried about this. I'm scared about this. Can you guys pray for me about that? Or then tossing out an idea saying, hey, I just saw this. What do you guys know about this? Oh, well, that author that you just mentioned, I just met with her last week, and here's the backstory of going on there. So we have found that it's been very important for us to establish culture in the beginning And my program director, Michael Graham, of course, good friend of both of us here, is just absolutely great with this stuff. They're just trying to establish a culture of humility, teachability, deference. One of Mike's phrases always is just low drama, (laughs) (laughs) low drama people. And I'm not saying we do that perfectly. We're just kind of embarking upon this thing. But there's got to be an interplay. I'm pretty excited about how the digital communication and digital relationships are preparing us to be able to meet in person. And I think that even spending a week together in person is going to catapult those relationships and those institutional dynamics in ways that we can't even really anticipate. So in a digital age, it's got to be both. And, and of course, with things that you've taught in through many articles and our upcoming good faith debates, you've done a good job of helping us to see the opportunities of a digital age, but also 
what can't be supplanted by our digital communications. I think you're 100% right. And even reflecting on my own experience, years ago, my wife and I, we were trying to figure out what we would do next. Where we going to stay at the crossing, which is where I became a Christian. It's where I'm currently a pastor. And, you know, we had some opportunities to go do a church plan or move here. And, you know, we got to this point where we realized, okay, I think God's just calling us to stay put and be here. And, now, moving into the present, where I have much more of a public voice personally than I did back then, I couldn't be more grateful for that decision because I think if we had moved somewhere else, I wouldn't have had the relationships necessary to confront me. I mean, the best gift I get from my friends who are here at this church, who are fellow pastors or people who attend the church, is they confront me all the time. They say, you just said something crazy on Twitter. Are you doing okay? You know, it's not even like, hey, that's wrong, you dummy. It's, where are you at, bro? <laughs> <laughs> that is such a gift to me. And I felt that too amongst friends that I even, like you just said, have made online who are able to confront and challenge or just help process questions that I'm wrestling with. And again, it goes to the reality that if we want to have an impact, I think, on our culture, it's not enough to just think well about culture. We really do need spiritual renewal. And I don't want to beat the Asbury drum too much. But again, I think it's the perfect illustration. I mean, it's been shocking to watch the press around that. It has been largely positive. <laughs> and I think it's because we when you see a bunch of Gen Z people who have suffered from anxiety and all sorts of mental health issues and loneliness, and they've lived through the trauma of COVID and, you know, you didn't graduate with your high school. I mean, all of these hardships they've gone through and they're experiencing this profound peace and connection and relationship and healing. There's something that tells the watching world, whoa, that's different than something I'm seeing anywhere else. And it's a reminder to me that we can't orchestrate God moving. We can set the ground. We can get as far as we want to. But in the end, he's the one who has to bring about the growth. The Spirit's going to go where he wants to go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's Asbury thing was wonderful providential timing because— Let me give you two parallels, okay? Two of the most important Christian voices, writers, of the baby boomer generation are Philip Yancey, who graduated high school in 67, and Tim Keller in 68. You're going to struggle to find a worse year in American history than 1968. I mean, you know, pick your poison there, 1941, 1861, things like that. Bad year, bad year. But what exactly is the Lord doing right now? What did he do in 2020? What fruit do we not see? When you look back on it, you're thinking, well, Philip Yancey and Tim Keller both walked away from the church for similar reasons. It was the legalism and racism were two of the reasons that they walked away as young adults from the church or became skeptical. Now, you can add into Tim's story as well is encounters with liberalism, both in the Lutheran church of his youth and confirmation and then also at Bucknell with his professor. So he was also reacting against that in the church, which is actually more similar to some of my story of reacting against the liberalism of the mainline. But the point is how many easy parallels could you draw to our own day? And yet the result was these amazing ministries and voices. And so when my friend reached out to me, we went to college together and he's been in campus ministry for the 20 years since. He said, Colin, I am starting to see something different in this generation. They do seem a little bit less, or maybe even a lot bit less cynical than we were as elder millennials. And I thought, huh, well, that would be tremendous. <laughs> That'd be great if they weren't succumbed to our 1990s, early 2000s, 9-11 era cynicism about everything. That'd be wonderful. That'd be great. 
I think it would be wonderful as well. I hesitate, given the debate about Keller and the Kellerites, to move into this line of questioning, but I do want to get your opinion. In the lead up to this book coming out, just the last year, it does seem like over the last year, year and a half, he's faced more critique from the inside, or at least from the people he might expect to be in his camp. (laughs) And part of that critique has been something to this effect. Once upon a time, we lived in a world that respected Christians and shared kind of normal, traditional Christian moral values. And eventually that world gave way to a time when maybe morally, traditionally, we'd left behind those morals, but Christians were still viewed with some respect. They were kind of viewed neutrally. It's not a good thing, not a bad thing. You just are who you are. And now we've entered a moment where Christians are by and large rejected and their vision of the good life, their vision of what it looks like to live together is rejected, not just as not good for me, but as unhealthy and bad for society. And thinkers along these veins have said that Tim Keller is representative of a former world. And the reason why he could be so gentle and ironic and avoid some of the hot cultural issues of the day, which I don't know that he actually did avoid them, but let's just go with the argument here for a second, is because he was living in a different era. And a new era calls for a new response, a more muscular response, a more public-facing Christianity that is trying to shape government and politics. And so I'm just curious. I mean, as you read Tim Keller, how does Tim Keller's style of ministry and cultural apologetics, how does it apply to the new moment we're in? Or would you say, you know what, this moment really isn't that different? Yeah. The last time I saw Tim in person, because the interviews we did were like this over Zoom or phone or email or text, last time I saw him was December of 2019. Just, you know, five months before his cancer diagnosis and three months before the world shut down. And he said, it just kind of sat back, and this was just kind of a general thought. He said, I'm not sure how much I did is really going to be very applicable for you guys today. He said, I'm talking with my granddaughter, and she is just not growing up in the same New York that I came to in 1989. He said, in 19, I mean, New York was rough. <laughs> the, the crime, secularism. I mean, you've only got, from what I could talk to people, four evangelical churches in Manhattan at the time. I mean, I talk in the book about New York's history and about how it was the evangelical capital of America in the 19th century. In the 20th century, there's a shift toward the liberal, quote-unquote liberal evangelical. They toss out a lot of biblical authority and the miracles. And then by the post-war period, it basically just is gone. It's effectively gone. So clearly, it's a pretty secular place when he gets there. I mean, actually, I point out in the book that it's roughly about the same level of national no-religion secularism today as it was in Manhattan at the time. It's kind of the point that none of the difficulties in opposition to Christianity is remotely new or novel to Tim. So it doesn't make any sense to look at his model of ministry as one that was for a place that was positively disposed toward Christianity. I guess maybe if he'd stayed at Hopewell, but even his model of ministry at Hopewell was nothing like, we just need that good old-time Southern religion. In fact, I loved talking in there about Bill Hill, this amazing renegade Presbyterian pastor who wouldn't allow flag-draped caskets to come into his church with World War II veterans. I mean, stuff like that and forced his church and his school to be integrated in the 40s in Virginia that was decades away from the Supreme Court decision that would legalize interracial marriage. 
because there's always this evangelical edge with Tim of trying to reach people with the gospel, but at the same time needing to stand against sin and preaching judgment and not going with the currents of culture. So I think at some level, Tim must be a kind of avatar for people of what they imagine to be true as a kind of intellectual ministry foil, even like intra-denominational foil for them, because it plainly doesn't represent an understanding of his actual life or his actual circumstances. Now, I'm a different generation from Tim, about the age of his sons, and I don't think it would really be fair for me to go back and kind of pick, well, this is what I would have done if I'd been Tim Keller. What I can say is that I don't really think it's an option for leaders to whisper or to be quiet about things like transgender changes. In fact, it's one reason why I've been so privately and publicly supportive of the work that you've done on that topic with your local school system, as well as abortion. And so in that regard, I'm definitely in the camp of J.D. Greer, the article that we published about him, that you cannot be silent about these things with the younger generations. You got to go after them head on. Now, he was critiquing Andy Stanley in that case, but Andy Stanley and Tim Keller are not the same in terms of their methodologies and their missiologies. They are definitely not in the same ballpark there. So I wonder if people just attribute thoughts to Tim as this kind of target that are not actually true of what he's done, or perhaps maybe they have had encounters with people who have been influenced by Tim in some way who do exhibit that problem. So maybe that's the case. It's a long, long, long answer to say in the end that even Tim himself has admitted that things have changed. He didn't begin to admit that because he suddenly woke up one day and read a First Things article. So that's (laughs) definitely not the case. He's been dealing with this his whole life. I do think that this time does demand very explicit teaching. And I'll come back on social issues, but I have to say running them through a political grid and a partisan grid makes very little sense in terms of an understanding of how cultures actually change. And evangelicals continue to be absolutely obsessed with political power, as I guess the only lever for them left to be able to pull because of their populist might that translates because of the over-representation in certain rural states, the Electoral College. I guess, and I'm grateful for Supreme Court justices who make the right decisions, like with Dobbs, But it is a relatively short-term way to think about cultural change. And then the last thing I'll say is that one of the oddest critiques I think of him is people saying, well, the problem with him is that he focuses on evangelism. He runs everything through the grid of evangelism. And I guess at one level, I want to say that's actually kind of true. I think he really does run things through the grid of evangelism. At the same time, one of the things that Tim has said to me, including on the podcast I do, Life and Books and Everything, he said, what alternatives do we have evangelistically? Is this new political program on the right or the left? Is it consistent with evangelism? I don't see that. And so on the one level, I'm thinking, no, we shouldn't run everything in the church through the grid of evangelism. At the same time, What does it actually say about us if we're not considering the evangelistic 
implications here. Well, at the very least, it probably means you're not really thinking about these things as an evangelical, right or wrong, but Tim is definitely an evangelical. I think it's really weird to say to an evangelical, you think too much about things from the perspective of an evangelist. I don't know where you've been for the last 50 years. That's who he is. He's an evangelist. So I don't, what do you expect him to say? That was, quite, that was a long answer. It's a long answer, and it's a helpful answer. My only interaction with Tim has been digital, and once upon a time he retweeted me, so I thought, okay, I can die a happy man. <laughs> you joked that there was something, oh, he taught a class with Ed Clown, and he thought, okay, now I can die a happy man. I felt the same yeah, way when right. Tim Kelly retweeted that's me. That's right. <laughs> uh, but what I had said in the tweet was, well, first of all, I said, if you can't tell the difference between Tim Keller and Andy Stanley, you're either dishonest or not paying attention. But then I moved on, and I said, the thing about any structure of a church or any missiology is that it's important improvisational, right? You have to fit the improv to the moment. And every cultural moment, every new generation requires a new missionary encounter. And what I appreciate so deeply about Tim and reading your biography was that it gave me a refreshed framework for how to engage a new cultural moment, which is different than the moment that he lived in, in many, many ways. I mean, like you said, our demographics are actually similar to the world he lived in, which is why I think we can pay a lot of attention. I mean, we're basically in New York in 1989. But there's differences. We live in a digital age. I mean, there's so many differences that we have to accommodate for. And that's what I found so helpful about the book and why I just want to, anybody who's listening to this, go read this book because I think what you're going to get is maybe not the play-by-play of Tim Keller's life. Instead, what you're going to get is the bibliography, the influences that shaped him into the kind of person that he is. And I think that's so important because we do need a framework to have a fresh missionary encounter with a new age, with a new generation. And I think Tim can point point us to the thinkers, the leaders who can help us become that and help shape us into the next generation of thinkers and leaders. That's why I love to encourage you about what you're doing at the Keller Center. I find it so fascinating. Most leaders thought they need to pass a baton to one person. <laughs> this will be my replacement. And when I look at the Keller Center, I think one, it represents a very decentralized age where we have all of these people who are now kind of carrying for the baton of Tim Keller. But even more importantly, here's a guy who has synthesized so many different thinkers into a coherent vision. And so is it a shocker that if he's going to pass his legacy forward, it's going to go to many people who together can synthesize a different vision of ministry. And so I'm just excited. So if you're listening to this, go check out Colin's biography of Tim Keller and make sure to go check out the Keller Center and the essays that are going to be coming out of there. I've read some already and interacted with some of the people there, and I'm just thrilled to see what you're doing and what's going to come out of this in the future. So is there any other way that people can follow you, get connected with you online? It's always that wonderful place called Twitter. Just follow me, <laughs> Colin Hansen, two L's, H-A-N-S-E-N, at Twitter, and just come check us out at thekellercenter.org. I should do it. You're a good Chiefs follow, so as a fellow Chiefs oh. fan, <laughs> yes. follow Colin for the yes. Chiefs. How about those? Chiefs. Yeah, Chiefs and Christ. Those are your two big things, it seems like. <laughs> the other one's first. And Christ the Royals, first. too, but we just don't, you know. We just don't have many re- much reason to celebrate with the Royals lately. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Would you mind praying for our audience as a way of leaving? Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a what a gift it is every day that we're able to, to have breath and life and and to be able to worship you with what we say and with we, what we do, help us, God, to become more dependent and more trusting of you through uh, these conversations. And help us, God, as we learn from your work in the past, to be inspired, to be able to be faithful in the present, and to be hopeful in the future. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.